0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to Common Grounds Unity. We're so glad you're with us today. All of us at Common Grounds Unity and the Water Church lost a dear friend last week, Mike Mack, the editor of The Christian Standard, a guest and co-host on Common Grounds Unity, and a friend of the church. He was doing what he loved. Some would say cycling, but I think it was being with those he cared about and who cared about him. He was on a cycling trip with friends in Colorado when he went to be with Jesus mike mack and i co-hosted an episode together this summer and we've been part of the same church in louisville kentucky northeast christian he was a man i always planned on trying to get to spend more time with he was always encouraging challenged stagnant thinking and was always promoting how the church could better understand and demonstrate unity to our broken world as i've read dozens of tributes to mike several themes bubbled up over and over he loved god he loved people he loved his family he served with joy and he will be greatly missed. To hear Mike on Common Grounds Unity, listen to episode 26 and 27 and the one he co hosted, episode 98. Our prayers are with his family and loved ones.
1: Hello everybody, this is Kevin Witham and welcome to Season 3 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Well, welcome to our conversation today. It is exciting to have the guests that we're going to have with us today as we kick off what is a look at healthy churches. That's our Series for the upcoming podcasts. And we're going to start that today with two that have written together in collaboration a, a book that really speaks to the church culture that we're in today in, in a profound and powerful way. We have with us a father daughter team, Scott McKnight and Laura Behringer. Um, Scott McKnight, many of you know, you probably read his works, maybe you've heard him. Lecture. He is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, a recognized authority on the New Testament, early Christianity, and the historical Jesus. He's the author of more than 90 books, including uh, one of the ones that's prominent in our discussion today A Church Called Tove, uh, also the award winning The Jesus Creed and The Blue Parakeet. He and his wife Kristen live in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Uh, Laura Beringer is a teacher and the co-author of A Church Called Tove. She's also a children's ministry curriculum writer for Grow Kids and co-authored the children's version of The Jesus Creed. She's a graduate of Wheaton College, and Laura lives in the northwest suburbs of Chicago as well with her husband, Mark, and their three beagles. Um, I'm thrilled to have both of them on again. Scott is Laura's dad, and they've collaborated together on... A Church Called Tove, which many of you have read, and then this book, Pivot, uh, that is released today. Uh, Pivot, its subtitle is The Priorities, Practices, and Powers That Can Transform Your Church into a Tove Culture. So let's get started with our guests. Well, Scott and Laura, welcome to the podcast. I, I can't thank you enough for being here to kick off this series on healthy churches. Uh How are things in Chicago, and how are the two of you?
2: We're doing well. I'm I'm doing well. I can't speak for Laura. She's she's down in another suburb, sweltering away. (laughs) A little warm
1: this time of year, huh, Laura?
3: Yeah, doing well down here, too. It is really, really grossly humid and hot outside here today. Yeah.
1: We are recording this in August. It'll air in September, so you're on a little bit of break from teaching. Uh, yep. are, are you getting a little respite from uh, from work and getting ready to go back?
3: I am. I'm enjoying the summer rhythms, no schedule, slower pace. It's gonna be it's gonna be an awakening to go back in a few weeks. It's been really nice. Yeah.
1: Well, so both of you being in Chicago, tell us just a, I've got to ask about your baseball loyalties. Do you, are you baseball fans? And is it White Sox or Cubs?
2: Okay, now I'm going to have to answer this question. Now, our son, Laura's brother, played minor league baseball in the Chicago Cubs organization Mm. and was in the front office for the Chicago Cubs for 15 years. And now he is the senior scout for the Cleveland Guardians. So we have changed teams like LeBron James, and we are for the (laughs) Cleveland Guardians in this house. Laura can still love the Cubs if she wants, but we don't.
3: (laughs) Yes, you do. You're still a Cubs fan.
2: I do not watch the Cubs games. I only watch the Guardians.
3: We've stopped watching the Cubs too, but not just because my brother works for Cleveland, but after the Cubs won the World Series, they betrayed the fans. And I know I sound very dramatic, but they got rid of all of our favorite players. Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, Javi Baez was the final straw for me. And I've been very upset with them for many years because we were deeply attached to these players that became part of the face of Chicago. And then they just let them all go. It's, it was devastating. I, I've, I still haven't gotten over it. I went back So it to is Ridley's a good time field. to shift. Yes, let's pivot to a different topic. <laughs> no,
1: I mean to shift to the the Guardians. I uh, will go. We'll, well go uh, a, book in I, just a minute.
3: <laughs> I am a guard. I am a Guardians fan, but they're in a different division. So the, I, the Cubs are in the National League, and I did return to Wrigley Field for the first time this year, and it, it was beautiful and lovely. And I decided that I, I can't hold my anger against the new players. They did not do anything to desert, you know, they, they are, they are innocent bystanders. So.
1: Oh, uh, I understand. Are you yeah, I'm sorry, a Padre you fan. Not at sorry, all. I'm, I'm a Padre fan. I love talking baseball and I, and I know what it is to be long suffering, but I, Scott, I like that family loyalty and, uh, yeah, yeah, wow. what fun to have a family member in the baseball. But dad, world.
3: they're in the, they're in the American league. You can still have a national league team.
2: I have I cheer for the Cleveland Guardians. I subscribe to MLB TV and I watch their game every time it's on TV. Or I have it. I have it on. Oh, I love it! I do not watch the Cubs and I do not cheer for the National League.
1: <laughs> well, I hope as uh, as this is getting ready to air, your Guardians are doing well, and uh, and, and your Cubs, Laura. Uh, I've got to say though, I'm a diehard Padre fan, and it's been a rough year. We were expecting more. Well let's let's move a little bit into to why we're together. You two wrote a a book that in my mind is not only so important in our culture today as far as the church culture it's prophetic and speaks a word that is desperately needed. The book a church called Tove forming a goodness culture that resists abuses of power and promotes healing. It was just a book and continues to be one of incredible impact and so relevant um, to our times. Now you're getting ready to today, as a matter of fact. Um, September 19th, your book, Pivot, will be released so people can can purchase that as of today. Why did you feel that it was necessary to follow up a church called Tove with this particular book?
3: After Tove was released and people had time to read it and absorb it, we started getting asked questions like, okay, well, how do we do this? How do we form a goodness culture? We believe everything you've said in the book, it meant a lot to us, but now we want to build a Tove culture and how do we do that? And I initially, I was when those questions started to become more frequent, I was back in the world immersed in glue sticks and kindergarten and, you know, being a teacher. And I initially was not comfortable speaking into that topic. Um, My dad was much more equipped to answer it than I was. And I just initially, I just said, I have no idea. I don't know. You go figure. I know what the problem is. I wanted someone else to go figure out the solution. But that question became more and more frequent. It did not go away as time passed. And so did several others. People wanted to know, how can we how can we build a goodness culture? What happens if things in our church are toxic? How do we get rid of those things? And lay people also wanted to know, what can I do? And what red flags should I look for? So Pivot is our attempt to answer those questions that became more and more frequent after a church called Tove was released.
2: Okay, Kevin, I have a question for you. Have you ever seen the Friends episode called where they talk about Pivot?
1: You know, I actually haven't. Good, good, good. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that, that series, I, I, I've got so many friends that rant, that rant about it or ranted at that time about it, but that was never one I engaged with all that much.
2: Well, Laura I I was just thought it was. I
1: in those years.
2: Laura thought I was crazy wanting that title because everybody's going to think of, of Friends and Pivot, and I said, I've never heard of Friends and Pivot. So
1: <laughs> I'm always trying to yes. find
2: friends on my team.
1: I'm with you on that one. I'm with you on that. You you both talk a lot in the first book, um, about church culture and its importance. Can you define that for us just a little bit and then how a church's culture impacts the spiritual formation of church members and ministry?
2: Well, we, um, we quoted David Brooks, uh, who makes a statement, something along this line that, um, People have to be aware of the significance of a, let's say, of a business culture or a culture to make people fit into that culture or to make people who don't fit into that culture. A culture is formed on the basis of the people, the policies, the decisions, the relationships that over time forms into an agent, almost like a... Uh, the something that is alive—it's almost like a person—in the in the midst of everybody and everything that works to contain people within that culture and constrain behaviors that try to get outside that culture. So, a culture is a living agent uh, uh, that is the result of how these people have related to one another and made decisions over time, and. If you go to a church that you're not familiar with, and it's, uh, you might experience it as weird. Well, you're experiencing something about that culture at that moment. You go to other churches and you say, "Wow, this place is impressive." That's a culture that you're experiencing because it's not something written. It doesn't say on the door when you come in you're going to be impressed, or when you come in you're going to discover that we're weird. You know, uh, it, it's it's something that's alive and and invisible and very difficult to discover and describe and even more difficult to change. And um, churches need to be aware that what is most important about that church is the culture that has formed and is forming. And we need to be culture detectors who can uh, have eyes to see and ears to hear the elements that are actually making up that culture.
1: You, you refer to cultures that are toxic. And of course, in a church called Tove, you deal with specific uh, churches and, and prominent figures that just a few short years ago, we seem to be bombarded with one story after another about mm-hmm. stories coming to the, the surface about toxic uh, cultures. So we use that term toxic. And then, of course, your whole book is built around this Hebrew word tov. So for our listeners, um, can you give a little bit of definition? Some uh, may not have read A Church Called Tov. I hope that our listeners do. Again, I I just think it is prophetic and speaks uh, such important things to our culture and age today. But could you give a little definition to those two ideas, those two words, how we see them in churches, and and then perhaps how can we discern if a church environment is actually toxic?
2: Well, here's what we'll do: I'll mention the toxic element in a sentence or two, and then Laura can can mention the Tove uh, dimension. Is that okay, Laura? I think you can do this. So, so we recognize okay. what we did is we studied church cultures that were toxic. We're not debating whether some of these church cultures were toxic. And here's, here's the first characteristic we found. We found that it nurtured a narcissistic culture. A narcissist was running the show.
3: We countered that with empathy. The opposite of narcissism is empathy. A narcissist is incapable of empathizing with another person. So we said a healthy Tove church would be one that's empathetic.
2: And a toxic church is also one that we discovered is often dominated by a power through fear culture. The leaders seem to have a hold on other leaders in their immediate circle and others that they, uh, they have so much power that they can instill fear in the others.
3: And we countered that with grace, that the opposite of, of living in a culture of fear would be living in a culture of grace,
2: and one of the uh, most demonstrable characteristics of a church that is toxic, a culture that is toxic, is what we call institution creep. In other words, the institution becomes more important than anything else, and and good things are sacrificed on the altar of the institution, and its counter. Laura will mention
3: putting people first. This one may have been one of our very first false narratives. This is which is how the book started where the false narratives chapter. Um, This one became personal because it felt like we were watching people that we know being slandered globally without exaggeration. Yeah. to protect the reputation of an institution. So rather than putting the institution and its reputation first, we countered that with, no, no, people are first.
2: People's names, people's stories. Then we, we noticed that toxic churches are are um, almost incapable of avoiding spinning narratives or or creating false narratives about the church. The most typical of one is which is they fired someone for some immoral reason. You know, I mean, there was some immorality and they, they announced from the platform because they've created an NDA with that person that they, uh, God has called them elsewhere.
3: So we countered that with tell the truth resist false narratives, form a culture that tells the truth. And I think one of my favorite chapters in the entire book, A Church Called Tove, is what my dad wrote about Yom Kippur and the habit of collectively confessing and repenting.
2: And a toxic church culture is also noticed by loyalty to the leader, usually a male narcissistic leader. Okay, so let's get, let's get, accurate and honest here and transparent, loyalty is one of the prized virtues. Uh, and it's it's loyalty to, let's say, the brand, the institution, and the pastor.
3: And to counter loyalty, we felt like a Tove Church would instead nurture justice, which my dad has termed, do the right thing and do it at the right time. Scott is my dad, by the way. <laughs> People don't know that a lot of times we get that people are surprised to know.
2: <laughs> well, it would help if Laura would write Laura McKnight Berenger in her name, but it takes up too many, too many uh, spaces on the cover of a book. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, doing the right thing at the right time has been a real challenge for a lot of churches. It, it can take them a year before they're willing to confess the truth and usually only because of social pressure through social media. Another one is celebrity culture. A toxic church is often driven by a celebrity and creating celebrities, and they see their pastor as like a hero, almost the fourth member of the Trinity.
3: And we countered the celebrity culture with service and an important element of that. So creating a creating a culture of service, but not to receive recognition for it, right? To do it and to serve other people, and to serve them faithfully, but without putting that up on stage and on screens and letting everybody know know it, lends itself to toxicity instead of nurturing service. Yeah,
2: I mean, we we know situations where people became celebrities for their service. (laughs) And it's that's an irony that ought to be called hypocrisy, I suppose. And then our final one, is uh, this is a pet peeve of mine, and um, and that is, I think we've we've con- uh, converted pastors into leaders, and when you when pastors are no longer pastors but they're leaders, entrepreneurs, and visionaries, they uh, begin to take on the business culture models rather than, let's say, theological and Christian models of leadership.
3: So to counter the leader culture that's seeped its way into a lot of churches, we countered that with nurture Christ-likeness.
2: So there are the seven toxic features and seven toe features.
3: We call that our circle of Tove.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, that's that's good stuff. You you call this back in the book, Scott, to some things Eugene Peterson wrote. Yeah. I remember in those final chapters, and I think I saw that shift when I first went into pastoral ministry in the eighties, kind of a movement away from, you know, the pastor in, in the role as biblically defined. And you started to hear, you know, pastor as CEO, the language started yeah. to change and you could see it. It wasn't too subtle at that time. Um, that word Tove, it just jumps out at me. Um, for our list- listeners, this, this word that means goodness. You make the point that in evangelicalism today, there's almost this idea that we can't be good. And yet this book for our listeners gets us at both the goodness of God and our own need to let goodness flow from the grace of God into our lives and into our churches in a powerful way. Now, that, that word that I, I wasn't all that familiar with before reading the book, you just see its prominence uh, just so glaringly after you make your way through the book. Let's talk a little bit about pivoting and encouraging those that are trying to pivot uh, congregations away from a, a more toxic culture to a more tove culture. What kind of encouragement would you give to somebody who's uh, starting that hard work of helping a church pivot, or maybe the person who has spent considerable effort but but sees little, if any, progress? What would you say to them?
3: The encouragement that I would say is it's possible and we can all participate in transforming ourselves and our cultures from toxic to toad. We've seen it happen personally. We've seen it, we've read about it. We've read beautiful stories of transformation of cultures and we've heard about them. So it is possible and it's not easy. The stories that we've read have been, there have been some treacherous stretches, but the leaders plugged away faithfully at driving against some of the toxic elements in the culture, and they surrendered to the spirit and listened to where he was leading and removed some of what was making it toxic and adding to it how to make it tove, things that would make it tove. So we know that it's really hard. Everybody that we've talked to who has done it has said so, but they've also said that it's possible and that it's absolutely worth it.
2: The, um, one of the things that we've learned um, about transforming a culture, besides the obvious one, that culture is a living agent that you're trying to resist, but you can't quite figure out what it is. This is a big issue. And that it took a long time for that culture to develop in the church that you're trying to transform. And it prob- in, in many cases, it took 30 or 40 or 50 years. And you can't just say, okay, we're going to preach a new series of seven sermons on Tove and we're going to have a completely Tove culture in the church. It's not going to happen that way. We learned from Organizational Transformation, a famous book by Edgar Schein, who is uh, sort of the guru in the United States in the corporate world of uh, transformation of culture and um, he he often goes to a, a major corporation and he'll spend two, three, four months, six months in the organization to discover what the culture actually is at that co- at that institution. And one of the conclusions of organizational culture transformation theories is that when the leaders and the principal parties, Are committed to transforming a culture it takes seven years so we believe it's possible Uh, we believe that there are good examples of it happening but it's hard work and it takes a lot of time to to engage this at such a level that the culture is actually transformed it's easy to change something on the platform It's a little bit harder to shift something going on in your church from a, let's say, um, a nine o'clock service to an 11 o'clock service or having a Sunday, Saturday evening service. That's harder. But to transform. So we make distinctions between change, shift, and transform. To transform is a deep work that takes a lot of time, a lot of discipline, and wherewithal and patience and anger and grace and the holy spirit
1: have you seen examples i i come from churches of christ and our our model of governance is different from some our elders have exercised more oversight than a singular pastor in a church and and ministers work alongside elders but yet you could have a toxic culture with that leadership as easily as a a more prominent single individual who has more authority vested in them. Have you seen examples where congregants, members of a church, see toxicity and they're able to address it and feel empowered to, to start to make that pivot?
2: You know, I've spent a lot of time in Churches of Christ. I have a lot of friends who are Churches of Christ preachers, not pastors. And, uh, and I've seen some churches of Christ um, change their culture. So, say I have some friends in Nashville, some other places. Um, I, it's possible, um, and it's not based upon the church polity, as it were. That's the question you're asking about polity, how it's organized and how it's run. It's based upon character, and what kind of character the people have who are capable of administering change. One of the things that we have been asked repeatedly in the last three years is by lay people who have been abused. I know in the Church of Christ, there's no such thing as lay people, but but you'll have to forgive me. (laughs) Um, You know us um, well. Who, who've been who've been abused, and they are are committed to the church. They love the people in the church, and they want to see change. What can they do? They ask this question of us all the time, and the initial answer that I gave in a podcast, like a like two hundred podcasts ago, um, was form pockets of Tove. They have to become like a person of Tove. Who surrounds themselves with other people who are committed to Tov and who want to live Tov, and they have to be satisfied in a sense with this little pocket of Tov that's doing things the right way, and not get too spiritually arrogant that we're the we're the good people in the church and everybody else a bunch of fumble dozers. Um, it, it's not like that, but they have to then try to grow from that uh, pocket of Tov and hope that other pockets develop or that their pocket grows. Now, there's limited capacity for this to transform the whole church, but that's one thing they can do. But when it comes to transforming a whole church, uh, Pivot has a couple chapters that are just on what to work with, uh, how to do this. So we have some, things, we have some ideas.
1: Our, our podcast and our ministry, which is... Uh, attempting to, to find the common ground between believers and build bridges of unity to honor Christ's prayer that we be one. Common Grounds really seeks to, through our podcast and in other avenues, to model having healthy conversations about topics or issues that tend to divide us. You emphasize the importance of conversation in healthy communities. Do you have some practical ways that you can guide our listeners into better or healthier
2: conversations. Okay. Let me say this, that the culture on a platform on Sunday morning, no matter how good the speaker, whether it's Randy Harris or Mike Cope, (laughs) okay? All right. Is a culture that is didactic and verbal, and it doesn't require any ears on the part of the person on the platform. That is not a culture of conversation. A culture of conversation is going to have to develop another way. And if, if your church is primarily, let's come hear so-and-so preach, um, you will never develop a, co- a culture of conversation. You have to have small groups and you have to have leaders that know how to converse with one another. So for instance, in my classrooms as a professor now, I'm not, this is not a church, but they're all Christian leaders. Um, one of the things I create, and I've been doing this for over 40 years, and I, I think I'm pretty good at this in my classroom, not always in other settings, but um, I tell the students, I said, I, I expect you to disagree with me. I'm not going to say anything stupid on purpose just to see if you'll disagree with me, but I expect you to disagree with me, and I want you to know that you're safe in here and you can disagree, and we'll have a conversation about it. And um, I'm very happy over the years how I've learned more about this in, in classes, and I think it's very possible for churches to do this, but you have to surrender ego to allow people to disagree with you and not get mad about it or not feel threatened by it. And we do not create that culture on Sunday morning. So it has to be created somewhere else. So that's a little bit, but conversation is about genuine questions and genuine listening and genuine attempts to express what other people have said to see if that agrees with them and then have a genuine dialogue about it. And it's it's very difficult to achieve in a church.
1: How, how do we find Tove people to, to emulate and, and why is emulation important?
3: I know why, it's, somebody asked us this recently and I said, how do we find people to emulate? I don't know. <laughs> um, I can tell you why I think it's really important. As a teacher, I, I find naturally that who I am is far more impactful than what I tell my students, that I teach them more based on who I am and how I treat them. And therefore they can learn how to treat other people than me saying, if for example, if I said, everyone be kind to each other, but then I wasn't kind to my students, they're, I'm not living what I'm teaching. And even though they're young, they pick up on that. So Jesus taught by emulation, the the greatest teacher of all. And so we believe that that's really, really important is to be the example that you want others to be. And some of the best, most tove people are probably not the people on the platform on Sunday morning in the church. You're gonna find people with beautiful gifts of hospitality or whatever that are beautifully Tove that are in the church, but are not up on the platform on Sunday mornings.
2: There's a sensation about finding people who are Tove that you want to emulate that I think is a common human sensation. And that sensation is when you're with that person, you want to be with them. And you just get this sense that that's a person I'd like to be like. Those are the people that need to be elevated in churches as worthy of emulation and imitation. I was just working, I'm writing these books called The Everyday Bible Study on First Corinthians 11, 10, 23 to 11, 1 this morning, where Paul goes through these almost tortured ways of trying to figure out how to make decisions if they if they if you're at if someone you're at someone's house who's an unbeliever and they give you food don't ask any questions just eat it but if <laughs> if they tell you it's been sacrificed at the temple don't eat it uh but you can eat anything you want and do everything for the glory of god and at the end he says imitate me now i i translate this in my translation copy me uh, as I copy Christ, mm. and right there, the, you know, he, he wants him at the end. Finally, at the end of this passage, Paul says, "Do everything for the glory of God. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's Jew or Gentile. Just do everything for the glory of God, and then follow Christ." Finally, he gives you know some principles like that, but that I think is the principle of asking the question of mature leaders in the church, not, not the young leaders that are just starting out, but over time, are they worthy of emulation? Not, not, are they good on the platform? Are not that they can sing in 18 part harmony, uh, <laughs> but, you know, is this a person I'd like to be like that? That's uh that's what we're looking for.
3: Dad, why did you use, you, why did you translate the word copy and not emulate or imitate?
2: Well, the Greek word is mimetai. And, um, well, copy is a short word. I try to use, I try to avoid Latin words. You you just pulled up a Latin word with emulation. So I try to use these Anglo-Saxon short terms like copy, uh, because they're, Greek. they're, they're bolder and stronger, um. And then I use that word every time uses comes up in the New Testament. So that's why I did
1: it. Years ago, as a young preacher in, in my early 30s, there was a, a preacher whose work I admired, and I happened to be in Nashville. And uh, he's been a guest on our podcast since, Rubel Shelley. He was preaching yeah, at I know. Woodmont Hills in Nashville. And I, I remember going to hear him preach and, of course, was moved by his message. It, it, it it just it, it was informative, inspirational, and it just hit on everything, hit on the heart. But one of the things I noticed, um, you know you can go to these larger churches and somebody who's got a pretty big platform, they disappear. Well, I, Rubel Shelley and his wife shook so many hands in the lobby after the service and came over and introduced themselves to me and my wife. had no didn't know I was a preacher or anything. I could have just been a guest from the community with a real interest and he and his wife were the last to leave that uh lobby and i took more away as a minister from what good ministry looks like from his lobby talk and and his interest in people there than the message as good as the message was and i think that's what you're saying look for yeah. people who who model tove goodness care um empathy and love and so Thank you for that. That's just that's good encouragement.
2: Kevin, I have a I have a manuscript from Rubel Shelley right now in my inbox. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, that he he's a tove man. He's a he tov is man. a tove man.
1: Yep. And you mentioned a couple of others a few moments ago as well. Um, <laughs> talk to us a little bit about power. What is power with, power for, and power through?
3: We we became aware as we were writing a church called Tove about Diane Langberg's beautiful research about power, that we all have it as humans, we have power. And I believe she defines power as the ability to influence people. And what, what we became increasingly aware of as letters began pouring in after Tove was released, is the incredible temptation to misuse power. And story after story poured in about, a little bit about sexual abuse, which I guess you could say is a form of power abuse as well, but it was mostly stories of power abuse, of people trying to ask a pastor a question, and the pastor not wanting to be questioned and got, use power to abuse that man or woman. And the stories just went on and on and on. And so, um, we got a little bit more specific in pivot about how to use power and the different levels of it.
2: Well, I've, I've talked about this for so many years in my classes. I'm not always sure what I wrote, but I know what I think. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, I think there I like to use prepositions with power because my goal is to make is to make this kind of stuff stick in people's memories rather than nuance it to the point that everybody is confused by what I'm saying. And I, I the prepositions are we all have power too. That's what Laura was talking about with Diane Langberg. We all have influence. But some people use their power over others. So another preposition is over. Power over is domination. It's the Roman way of doing things. You know, James and John, put up to it by their mother, asked the question, uh, when we get to the kingdom, can one of us sit at your left and the other at the right? They want to be in charge. That's power over. Power with begins to be a Christian understanding of power, where we realize that Power, in a sense, is a gift from God that we want to share with others because power is not a zero-sum game. Uh, The more power we share, the more power of God can be at work in our church. So uh, power with is to, let's say, move over just a little bit on the platform or in the office or at the table for someone else to sit next to you and share in that power and use it. And then power four is to use our power for the empowerment of someone else. And this is when we actually step off the platform. And then, you know, we've actually given someone else the opportunity to use their gifts where we normally would be exercising our gifts. And then power through um, the final one is where we actually give away our power and walk off the platform and go sit somewhere, you know, go sit in the in the church with everybody else. And we're just one of the ordinary people. And these are all manifestations of the sort of ways Jesus and the early apostles learned how to, in a sense, distribute power in the church that God had given to them.
1: Talk to us, if you will, about healthy steps that, uh transformation agents uh, can take that that can lead to creating some new behaviors?
3: So I think, I think in order to take meaningful steps for transformation, the most important, one of the, one of the most important things that needs to happen first is to know exactly what the problem is to, I, and without Edgar Schein is big on this, we mentioned him earlier with research that you have to you have to identify the problem and be crystal clear about what it is and then after you've identified what the problem is what needs to change then you can set to work developing a plan and it sounds it sounds simple but it's often the hardest step of all to confront your own character your own culture and so what we did is i shouldn't say and what we did what we did is we developed a tool for self-reflection, and we called it. It started developing over time. It initially was just um, a long list of questions that groups could ask themselves and then discuss in a safe in a safe place. And then we gradually were like, you know, this could be really helpful. We divided it up into. All of we've mentioned our circle of Tove earlier, we divided it up into sections. So for example, there's a section in the Tove tool assessment about institution creep, like how are we doing at putting people first versus the reputation or the institution? And so after individuals and groups and churches have completed it, Our hope is that they would be able to look back at it and look at the scores. And again, it's not statistically normed or anything like that. It's something that we made based on a church called Tove and my dad, the theologian's wisdom going into it. Um, But our hope is that it will provide a really good place to start and it will lead to difficult um but hopefully transformative conversations so know where you're at know what the problem is maybe you have a number of them and pick one start with one that you want to transform
2: and uh the whole thing about steps is uh let's say this is at two levels is um the first step is to build a coalition in the church around Tov. And this is a time-consuming process that requires, let's say, an agent, a, transform, a transformation agent who sort of is the leader for working on this transformation of the churches into a Tov culture, is to start with small conversations, biblical studies, to come up with some major ideas of what they want to do and then, to find a few more people to sit around the table and uh, kick it kick it around a while and listen to one another and build a little bit bigger idea or a little bit better idea, and then expand that a little bit. And um, this can take a couple of years. I know a, a pastor who worked on the transformation of his church culture. It took five years before they went to the congregation. And this was just among the leaders. Now it's a fairly big church he has like 200 people who are leaders in the church lay and paid or lay and whatever and um but it took quite a while to build the consensus that was owned by the let's say the major stakeholders in that church that that were the influencers and fully committed and they were the ones that would be leading all this they they all came together over the major ideas of creating a kingdom-based church. Mm. Now, the other thing about this one step at a time is once you've taken the tove tool, let's say now you've formed you're going to be a tove. Now we're going to do this tove tool. Um, that is I think you need to score your 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 group, let's say all your leaders and say, you know, where we're really weak is um, We don't have any service mentality in our church at all. Uh, We're we're here for ourselves. And it's all about the church on Sunday and who we are as believers and our small groups. We're not serving anywhere. And then you have to say, all right, we're going to work on service this year. Not this week, but this year, because it's going to take a long time to turn a church that's looking at itself all the time to a church that's looking out or at others all the time. So, so those are sort of the, some of the things we have about what step at a time.
1: Uh, those are helpful. And and I think some of the encouragement I'm taking away is, is well, give it the time that it takes. Um, yeah, it's, it's process. It'll take patience for churches that, uh, need to see culture change and God's got time if we've got yeah, a will to yeah. get our hearts in the right place. Well, what a blessing this has been. I, I can't thank the two of you uh, enough for being, being with us. And uh, I, I want to have a little fun, if you got one minute, just to uh, ask you a question that we, re- we like to ask our guests. Our, our motto on Common Ground Unity is that uh, unity starts with a cup of coffee. You know, it's relational. Um, it, it's not having debates back and forth, always about doctrine and theology, but it's getting to know those other believers in your community, whether they're of your own tribe or denomination or non-denomination or, or whatever. So uh, with that motto, we always ask our guests, um, not always, but but often, if, if I were to come to Chicago and sit down with two of you uh, and and. They have a little fellowship. How do you take your coffee?
2: (laughs) Laura, how do you?
3: Well, okay. That's a complicated question for my dad. Mine is is simpler. I like, I really like Intelligentsia coffee. And I take it with pour the cream in first and then the coffee on top. No way. See, he's shaking his head.
2: (laughs) You or know, if
3: I'm at home, I like to foam nut pods and pour that on top.
2: I uh, I like latte, but um, I've had I had a Rancilio Silvia that after ten years conked out, and then we bought an electric one by Philips, and I'm complaining about it right now. It lasted two years, so now we're drinking uh, mocha pot coffee, uh, and I steam. I steam the milk, but it's a huge mistake to put the milk in first and then pour no. the coffee in.
3: No, because then you don't have to, then you don't have to stir it.
2: It naturally. I don't, I don't stir it. I don't stir it. You
1: just, you just <laughs> swirl the cup. Any yeah. great, well, Chicago's a great food uh, city. Any great coffee spots you go to there? Oh.
2: Well Laura mentioned it, Intelligentsia. Intelligentsia. Is Chicago's there. is Chicago's premier coffee place. Mm. Right down well, by the Bean. They serve
3: it at several local restaurants around here. Yeah. It's always a highlight yeah. to go out to breakfast yeah. and get some intelligentsia coffee.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I'd I'd love to have that cup of coffee with the two of you. It has just been a delight to have you as guests on, on our Common Ground Unity podcast. I want to say to our listeners, first, if if you have not read a Church Called Tove. Again, the, the complete title is A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture that Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. Uh, I highly recommend it. I, I just strongly believe this is one of those books that is is prophetic. It, it, God is co- conveying things to us through the way they take his word and the whole idea of goodness and say, this this is what the church is supposed to look like. I think it's preventative for those that are entering ministry or entering roles of leadership. It can help you to guard against um, toxicity that exists in so many churches. And if you are are dealing with a toxic culture, it gives a good map and pathway out. Um, so I, I, I hope you'll buy it, read it. It's on Tyndale Publishing. And then today, when this podcast releases, September the 19th, today you can get Pivot. Um, it also is on Tyndall. You can get it on uh, hard copy, Kindle, Audible, if you, you'd like to listen to your books read to you. So get Pivot and uh, read, Read. I think, let me ask you this. Both Should you read the first? I, I tend to think you should read A Church Called Tove before Pivot, but is that necessary? I don't know all the content of Pivot.
3: Not entirely. We worked hard so that you would not have to. Um, it is a, an answer to questions that people had out of A Church Called Tove, but they definitely can be read independently of each other.
2: Yeah, yeah. Same, I have the same answer.
1: That's good to hear, but yeah, I'm going to recommend it. you get both. So I yeah. think it's going to be good for <laughs> you. Oh, Thank yeah. you both so much for joining with us. It's been a real pleasure having you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right. I hope you'll come back again in the future after Pivot's been out a while to talk about it a little bit more. Okay. Well, we want to thank you for being a part of our conversation today, and we hope you'll join us for our next podcast. We're going to be continuing our series on healthy churches, and Stan Granberg, who was with us just a couple of months back on a podcast uh, related to his book, An Empty Church, or The Empty Church, will be back with us to talk about healthy churches. So join us again for our next, next podcast. Thank you for being with us for this. one. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax-deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless, and remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.